Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 124, and today we are going to be looking at the subject of apostasy. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, in the show notes, I have a link to a Kickstarter campaign I launched a few weeks ago to help raise funds for my next album called Dusk and Dawn. So please go check that out and prayerfully consider giving to that campaign so I can have my next album professionally mixed and mastered. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, and you can check out all the content that we upload each week on our Omega Frequency Live YouTube channel, so go check that out. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 124. We're talking about a very serious and very sad subject today, the subject of apostasy. And as we talk about this, I want to encourage you to not look down on some of the people that I talk about um, who have apostatized. I want to encourage you to not think, I would never do that, or I could never do that. Try humbly to guard yourself from that type of thinking. Two-time Grammy Award-nominated Christian rapper Brady Fanatic Goodwin recently publicly renounced Christianity after years of harboring doubts about the faith. Goodwin was one of the co-founders of the influential Christian rap group The Cross Movement. And according to churchleaders.com, Goodwin has authored five books, holds a bachelor's degree in biblical and Christian service from Lancaster Bible College, and a master's degree from the Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He has also taught apologetics, biblical studies, and cultural cultural engagement at the Philadelphia-based Center for Urban Theological Studies. Goodwin said he initially began to doubt Christianity when he was at Westminster Theological Seminary in 2014. Throughout 2021, Goodwin brought his issues to professors who knew the scriptures and the original languages, and to his surprise, the professors looking at him were like, you finally got here. Recently, Goodwin posted a 24-minute video on his Facebook page titled, Unbecoming a Believer. In the video, he said, quote, I sent a letter to my church withdrawing my membership and saying that I am denouncing the Christian faith that I have believed, professed, proclaimed, and defended for the last 30 years of my life, unquote. So what do we do with this? Some people would say, well, if you are no longer a Christian, then you are never one to begin with. 
and they would quote passages like Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and call and cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And here some people would say, see, they never had a relationship with Jesus. But I want to encourage you to not discount their testimony. People like Fanatic, who professed, defended, proclaimed the Christian truth for decades. Is it really fair to say they were faking or they were confused? They never really believed Jesus. Is that, is that a fair thing to put on them? I don't know. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 Verse 3 says, Paul writes, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, some would say, yeah, but that would be like a genuine Jesus is Lord, so maybe he was never genuine, but it seems like he was pretty genuine for 30 years professing Jesus as Lord. A few years prior, a man named Joshua Harris, who is famous for writing the books, I Kiss Dating Goodbye and Boy Meets Girl, he publicly professed that he was divorcing his wife and then like the next week said that he was leaving the Christian faith. John Piper reacted to the news of Joshua Harris's apostasy at a conference where he implored believers to press on and that a believer pressing on to the end is the, the proof that their Christianity was sincere to begin with. And Fanatic actually wrote a song about that. Um, this is a few years ago. I'm going to read you a few of the lyrics from Fanatic's song, Press On. And he's coming from a Reformed background, just, just like John Piper. Fanatic writes, One must endure to be sure that God is giving them a gift. If not, his floor is a constant continental drift. His conscience is his only compass, competent only in shifts. The twist is, I'm confident of this. God warns us and admonishes us, and yet his promise is legit. And this is not as astounding as it gets. We are autonomous, yet his honor is sovereign in his intent. What I meant is that his providence is sensed. Even if we're abominous and pay homage with just our lips, we must press on. So pausing there for a second, notice that Fanatic is saying that God warns us about uh, falling away and warns us how important it is to endure to the end. Uh, and we have a sense of free will, but yet God's sovereignty 
is reigning all all through this situation, even if we're abominous, he's saying, even if we're uh, an abomination to him, and we're just paying homage to him with our lips, saying Jesus is Lord, but not really meaning it. God is sovereign over all of that. We must press on. Let's go to the next verse. He says, over and over the scripture warns us that we must run the race that was set before us. But God informs us who can be against us if he is for us. The text ensures us that God's grace supports us to stop taking shortcuts. Who can thwart the plan of the Lord? Not death or life can separate those his hands secure. If it sounds like I'm talking out both sides of my neck, I'm not. I'm talking out both sides of the text. So watch and listen to the words you hear. We must muster the strength just to persevere. And even though we compete, what God begins, he completes. Faith is the arena. Eternal life is the reward. A great cloud of witnesses stands to applaud all those who win the wreath and celebrate God's grace for those who continue in belief. So yes, we can rest. Press on. It's interesting there, right? He's saying that no one can thwart God's plan and the things that he begins, he brings to completion. God is sovereign over all of this. We've got to press on, though. We've got to press on. Does that sound like an unbeliever writing? I'm just curious. With all that scripture, the way he's promoting the gospel there, does that sound like something an unbeliever would write? One of the Greek words that's used in scripture to explain this concept of apostasy is aphistemi, which means to fall away, to rebel, to depart from, to abstain, to leave, to take up a position away from. One of the first times that it's used in scripture is in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. This is when Jesus is an infant and his parents have brought him to the temple. And Luke records, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Now, I'm not trying to suggest here that Anna apostatize, but I want you to pay attention to the way this word is used. Luke says she never left. She never left, which would mean that she was there. In order to leave the temple, she had to first be at the temple. Keep that in mind. Luke 8 verse 3 records uh, part of the parable of the soils. And uh, Jesus explains what these each what each soil means. In verse 3, 
Jesus says, those on rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while, but in the time of temptation, fall away. So, were they never believers? Because in order to leave the temple, you had to be in the temple, right? In order to fall away, you had to first believe, seems to say. Another time this word uh, aphistemi is used is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Paul says that the Spirit makes this explicit, that in the last days, some people are going to fall away from the faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, and we'll come back to this later. The author writes, Take care, brethren, that there may not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Notice he's talking to brethren, people who believe in Jesus, and he's saying that you need to be very careful that in any of you, an unbelieving heart does not sprout up, that falls away from the living God. Now, just to make this clear, I absolutely believe in security of salvation for the believer, right? John 3.16 makes this very clear, and we'll read all the way through 18 as well, but For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. That word believes in verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That word is a present active participle, meaning someone who has in who is in a current believing state. So, it seems those who believe in Jesus have security of their salvation. Those who do not believe in Jesus do not have security of salvation. So, is it possible to actually fall from a state of believing into unbelieving? Is it possible to fall away from the faith to at one point genuinely believe in Jesus, but then renounce the faith? Is it possible to genuinely apostatize? The word apostasy in Greek is apostasia, which means to leave or depart away from 
properly departure. Apostasy literally means a leaving from a previous standing, a leaving from a previous standing to defect. Think like um, Benedict Arnold in the American Revolution. He defected. He was an apostate from the American army. No one believes that Benedict Arnold was never a part of the American uh, Revolution to begin with. No, he was absolutely a part of the American Revolution, but then he left his place of standing. He departed from one side to join another side. He defected, he revolted, he apostatized. Listen to how this word is used by Luke in the book of Acts. This is in chapter 21 where James, the brother of Jesus, is talking to Paul who has arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke writes, And the following day Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, think about that there. James tells Paul that Paul is being accused of telling the Jews to apostatize from Moses, to revolt from Moses, to defect from Moses. Well, in order to defect from Moses, they had to be disciples of Moses, in a sense, followers of Moses, which is what they were. It's not that they were never believers or followers of the Mosaic law. Of course they were, and Paul is now being accused of calling them to defect from that. We see this word again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Pay attention. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So Paul says, before the Lord can return, a great apostasy has to come first, a great falling away from the faith, it seems like, like he was talking about in 1 Thessalonians, or sorry, 1 Timothy 4. It seems like Paul and the other biblical writers genuinely believe that people can go from a state 
of believing to a state of unbelieving. So we began this uh, podcast by talking about Fanatic, uh, the rapper from Cross Movement. We talked about how he is a, a disciple, in a sense, of John Piper, who is a five-point Calvinist. So what is the Reformed position on this? Well, if you know the five points of Calvinism called TULIP, the acronym TULIP, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints, you would know that they believe the Reformed position is that if you have truly been chosen by God uh, to be one of his elect, it is impossible for you to not press on, for you not to persevere. But if you really want to understand the Reformed position on any matter, you've got to know what they believe about sovereignty. And I'm going to do an episode next time devoted specifically to what the early Christians believed about sovereignty and what Reformed uh, people believe about sovereignty. But uh, let, let me read to you a quote from an article John Piper wrote called, Has God Predetermined Every Tiny Detail in the Universe, Including Sin? All right, and of course, apostasy would be a sin, right? Not believing in Jesus, even if you believed he never believed. This is a continual, I guess, proclamation of someone not believing. So what is the reform position on apostasy? Well, you can understand it from this quote. So Piper writes, quote, has God predetermined every tiny detail in the universe, such as dust particles in the air and all of our besetting sins? Yes. He controls everything and he does it for his glory and our good, unquote. So Piper is being very consistent. He says, if you truly believe in God's sovereignty, then every single thing, every tiny detail in the universe, in the universe, God is controlling. He's controlling this. He predestined every single tiny event in the universe, including all of our besetting sins. So from John Cal or sorry, from John Piper's point of view, and you're going to see it's from John Calvin as well, from John uh, Piper's point of view, before the foundation of the world, God determined that fanatic would believe that he was a believer for 30 years. God determined that fanatic would go around the world preaching the gospel. God determined that Fanatic would go to seminary and teach apologetics. God determined that he would get into his middle age believing in the security of his own salvation. And then God determined that he would question his faith God determined that other professors around him would encourage him questioning his faith. And God determined that he would confusingly, in a sense, apostatize 
from the faith, thinking that he was now rejecting the faith that he used to believe, even though he evidently, according to the Reformed, only was chosen to think that he genuinely believed. Even though it seems like he genuinely, I mean, he genuinely believed and moved away, the Calvinistic position would be that God controlled all of this. Just just sit with that for a second. If you think Piper is like way, way out of touch with God's sovereignty, he is getting this straight from John Calvin. I want to read a couple of quotes on this. And again, uh, in the next episode, I'm going to give a much more thorough uh, treatment of sovereignty. So this is Calvin from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is book three, chapter 21, section seven. Calvin writes, quote, We say then that Scripture clearly proves this much, that God by his eternal and immutable counsel determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. We maintain that this counsel, as regards the elect, is founded on his free mercy without any respect to human worth, while those whom he dooms to destruction are, in, are excluded from access to life by a just and, blame, and blameless, but at the same time, incomprehensible judgment. Next quote is from Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 23, Paragraph 6. Quote, but since he foresees future events only by reason of the fact that he decreed that they would take place, they vainly raise a quarrel over foreknowledge when it is clear that all things take place rather by his determination and bidding, unquote. Last quote, again from Institutes, Book 3, uh, Chapter 23, Paragraph 6, quote, individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death and are to glorify God by their destruction. So just think about what this is saying. First of all, it's not saying that God um, foreknows everything because he's omniscient. Calvin says the reason why God foreknows everything is because he determined everything before the foundation of the world. He determined everything thing. That's why God knows all, all things. That's why he foreknows all things, because Calvin would say um, God's determination precedes his foreknowledge. So God determined, according to Calvin, before the foundation of the world for fanatic to go on this roller coaster of the faith, and God determined fanatic to be an apostate because it would bring God the most joy to do that. And because that glorifies him. Fanatic um, preaching the gospel around the world to probably hundreds of thousands of people um, and then rejecting the faith glorifies God. That is the uh, reformed position 
on this subject? Well, what is the early Christian position on this? Well, one of the earliest Christian apostates was a man named Tatian. Irenaeus writes about Tatian in his uh, book, uh, book one of Against Heresies. And he writes in chapter 28, many offshoots of numerous heresies have already been formed from those heretics we have described. This arises from the fact that numbers of them, indeed, we may say all, desire themselves to be teachers and to break off from the particular heresy in which they have been involved. A certain man named Tatian first introduced the blasphemy. Now, what he's talking about is Tatian saying that Adam is damned. Um, let's continue. Tatian was a hearer of Justin's, and as long as he continued with him, that's Justin Martyr, as long as he continued with Justin, he expressed no such views, talking about he was not teaching any kind of heresies. But after his martyrdom, he separated from the church and excited and puffed up by the thought of being a teacher as if he were superior to others. And then Irenaeus compares uh, Tatian to Valentinius, the founder of the Gnostic sect, the Valentinians. Irenaeus also writes about apostasy when he says, quote, and this same thing does the Lord say in the gospel to those who were found on the left hand. Think about Matthew 25, sheep and goats. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, which my father had prepared for the devil and his angels, indicating that eternal fire was not originally prepared for man, but for him who beguiled man and caused him to offend. For him, I say, who is the chief of the apostasy, and for those angels who became apostates along with him, which fire indeed they too shall justly feel, who, like him, persevere in works of wickedness without repentance and without retracting their steps. So pay attention to what Justin said there. He just said the original apostate is the devil. And he says, and those angels who followed the devil in rebellion against God are also apostates. So think about the way he's using this term apostate. Was the devil originally a good angel on God's side? Yes, but he defected. He's the original defector. He's the original re uh, rebel. He's the original apostate. And these other angels too that were created good, right? Everything God created was good. There was no sin in these angels before they defected. They were not in sin, but they defected from the side of Yahweh. That is what an apostate is. You have to be on the side of Yahweh to defect from Yahweh, to be an apostate. That's the way the early Christians, at least, defined apostasy. Here's Cyprian as well. Quote, this is around 250. We do well in seeking the kingdom of God, that is the heavenly kingdom, because there is also an earthly kingdom. But he who has already renounced the world 
is moreover greater than its honors and its kingdom. And therefore, he who dedicates himself to God in Christ desires not earthly but heavenly kingdoms. But there is need of continual prayer and supplication that we fall not away from the heavenly kingdom, as the Jews to whom this promise had first been given fell away, even as the Lord sets forth and proves. Many, he says, shall come from the east and from the west and shall recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we've heard the reform position on apostasy. We've heard the early Christian position on apostasy. Now I'd like to turn to Dr. Michael Heiser, and I'm going to read uh, three paragraphs from a uh, a blog post that he did called "Election, Salvation, Unbelief, and Eternal Security." Dr. Heiser writes, "Quote: The bottom line is that." Regardless of what profession we make or have made in terms of faith in Christ, we must believe to have eternal life. Parentheses, John 3.16, what else? uh, Close parentheses. We are not eternally secure because of a prayer we prayed at some point in our past if we do not now believe. There is no assurance without belief. There is no security without belief. No one goes to heaven who does not believe the gospel or whatever revelation God gave to them to elicit a faith response as in the Old Testament before the work of Christ. We must believe. I think at this point it is important to point out that a person can sin and very badly and still be believing. There are plenty of scriptural examples Unbelief should also not be equated with doubt. There are scriptural examples there too, like Thomas, the psalmist or prophet who asks where God is in times of trouble, etc. I would go further and also say that unbelief is also not the instance where a believer succumbs to fear or persecution. Unbelief is a decision of the heart that one no longer believes the gospel, that one no longer wishes to follow Christ. It is spiritual apostasy, choosing another God or no God at all. No one is in heaven who does not believe. And that is the point any detractors of my position must show to be otherwise. I think it noteworthy in light of this that in the long list of what cannot separate us from God's love, unbelief does not appear. Why? Because that can separate us from God's love. In fact, it keeps us from God's love shown to us in Christ. No sins of the flesh can remove us from the family of God. The only thing that keeps us from God's family is unbelief. Salvation is by grace through faith. God's part and our part, both are essential, unquote. So where does that leave us? Well, again, um, 
I believe in security for the believer, but no security of salvation, of course, for the unbeliever. So what should we do? Well, I want to leave us with three passages, two from Hebrews and one from 1 Corinthians. First, Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12, the author writes, quote, Take care then, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our our assurance firm until the end. So it seems like though sin um, will not separate us from God, sin has a way of hardening our hearts that can deceive us into falling away in unbelief from the living God. So how should we approach sin? Well, now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24, and we're going to read all the way through verse or chapter 10, verse 14. Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified." For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And finally, what is one of the main ways that God will show us the way out of temptation? He will do it by having us remember the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God bless you. fire of the old days like a child before hope fades disappointment sets in wake me to your wonder and shake me from this slumber and make me burn with passion again Heartbreaking